Brothers and sisters, if you don't change your ways, you are on the road to Jam Nation. Gonna see the river man. Gonna tell him all I can about the plan. If he tells me all he knows about the way his river flows. Welcome, everybody, to episode 33 of Road to Jam Nation. After my last episode did a deep foray more than 100 years into the past to 1917, I'm now returning to the comforts of the rock and roll era, although still well into the past, as in this episode, I'm going to begin a multi-episode series discussing the albums and musical trends of 1969. When I did the listening project for 1969, it really wound up sticking out to me as a year of decidedly weird music. Between the increased experimentalism in pop and rock music that abounded during the late 1960s, and adding in the impact of musicians who were taking way too many drugs at the time, and add that to the fact that the music industry was positively booming at the time, leading to labels being willing to tolerate a lot of oddness as they pursued potentially lucrative new hot sounds. There was a lot of very non-mainstream music that was being professionally produced, released, and widely distributed on major record labels. The same level of weirdness is also widely available today, but that's largely because anybody with a computer can self-produce their own music and make it widely available on the internet. While there was definitely strict gatekeeping going on in the 1960s in the music industry. While every era has its share of tortured genius musicians, the second half of the 1960s seemed to be especially rich in these type of people. Two specific examples of this from 1969 that stuck out included the debut album from Nick Drake, which was titled Five Leaves Left, as well as the debut and only solo album to ever be released by former Moby Grape co-founder Skip Spence. That album was titled Or. Nick Drake's album was the first of only three albums that were released before his overdose death in 1974. Drake was a victim of severe depression. While Five Leaves Left is extremely well produced, with heavy use of symphonic orchestra, with Drake performing live in the studio with the orchestra, Five Leaves Left still feels like the sort of extremely personal, introspective statement that Nick Drake's career became widely known for. Looking up the thoughts of Mary Jane Why she flies or goes out in the rain Where she's been and who she's seen In her journey the stars. Meanwhile, 
Skip Spence's oar is positively mad, sometimes in a good way, and other times in a bit of a harrowing way. Orr was intended as a demo, so it's an extremely spare recording, and that spareness adds to the overall spookiness of its most tortured segments. The album was produced shortly after Spence had been released from a six-month stay in Bellevue Mental Hospital, where he had spent his time composing most of the lyrics for this album. Orr was produced a mere two years after Moby Grape's debut album had come out, and that album had its links to the sunny idealism of the Summer of Love and the joy of the band's three-way guitar interplay as a group. That legacy helps to lend extra sadness to the isolated bewilderment and sadness that pervade the album Or. Weighted down by possessions Weighted down by the gun Weighted down by the for you. In both cases of Nick Drake and Skip Spence, these albums wound up being critically heralded, and both the albums have deep fan followings today, despite the fact that both albums were commercial failures at the time of their release. This critical praise and fan obsessions is hardly surprising given the originality of these two works and the intimacy in the lyrics on both of them. Both of these albums are beautiful and haunting work, each in their own unique way. But I can't personally say that either one of these albums has ever held a strong connection for me, as they obviously do for their modern obsessive fan bases. So neither of these two albums will be appearing in my personal favorite top 20 albums for the year but I respect and admire the work in both cases and have tremendous sympathy for the mental suffering that led to these artists producing this very intimate work. And since I'm talking about the great oddness to be found in the music of 1969, it has to be said that while it was not released on a major label, 1969 was the year that the album Philosophy of the World came out by the Shags. If you have led a blissful life of not previously knowing the music of the Shags, allow me now to shred that bliss into little tatters of nostalgia for a time when the world made sense. Because listening to the Shags for the first time can be such a bewildering experience that it would be understandable if it made you doubt that the universe we live in has any structure or rules to it at all. Or at least it becomes certain that it's actually possible to create music without actually having any idea what music is supposed to actually sound like. The Shags were a family group of young teen girls who were managed by their father, who was very strict, but he believed that his daughters were destined for fame due to a fortune told to him by his mother when he was young. He arranged for his daughters to have some private perfunctory lessons in music, but he also never allowed them to listen to pop radio or records. So, except for these lessons in music, his daughters 
didn't really have much clue as to what rock and roll music sounded like that their father wanted them to become famous for recording. Their father wound up paying a local record label to record the girls and to press 1,000 copies of the album that they recorded. The results of this recording were an album full of innocent and bizarre childlike lyrics, sung pretty much monotone over the top of wandering drum beats that seldom mesh into coherent rhythms, and atonal strumming on untuned guitars, with melodies that freely bounced among unrelated time signatures. As music, this album is complete chaos making even the most out-there, experimental free jazz of the 1960s seem conservative and mundane by comparison. And yet these songs have an innocent charm to them that almost makes it digestible and enjoyable in very small doses. It loses that magic quickly when you try to listen to it at length. It's like the difference between how cute it is to hear a small child recite a favorite rhyme versus how annoying it is to hear them recite that rhyme dozens of times in a row in, in quick succession. never find him home. I go to his house, knock at his door. People come out and say, foot, foot, don't live here no more. So in addition to Skip Spence, another star of the San Francisco music scene that broke away to a solo career in 1969 was Janis Joplin, who recorded her first album outside of her former band, Big Brother and the Holding Company. Joplin's first solo album was I've Got Them Old Cosmic Blues, and on this album would try and bring in a horn-infused soul band approach, a sound that Big Brother had been unwilling to try and pursue with her. This album also wound up featuring Mike Bloomfield on three of the tracks, and most of the other musicians on it were well-accomplished studio professionals some of whom also wound up becoming a part of her Cosmic Blues Band touring group. There's no doubt that the music that Janice produced here provided a more structured accompaniment to Joplin's outstanding vocal abilities than the loose and psychedelic sound of Big Brother. But ultimately, to me, the whole Cosmic Blues album is much less than the sum of its parts. While there are great musicians involved in this album, and Joplin's vocals are as amazing as they ever were, the music on this album is missing the solid groove feel of a truly first-rate soul band. Also hurting the album is that most of the songs just aren't all that strong and memorable, other than the typical strong vocal work that Janice provides to them. So this album is not making it into my favorite 20 list for this year. The lead-off track on this album is the best cut on it and I've chosen to go ahead and feature that now. Enjoy. Try. 
Another San Francisco band, the Charlatans, finally released their only studio album. I say finally because the Charlatans had actually been founders and innovators of much of the cultural landmark traits of the well-documented San Francisco music scene of the 1960s. Although most of those early innovations by the band had actually revolved around their residency at the Red Dog Saloon in Virginia City, Nevada. The charlatans were part of a group of young people who were putting on experiences at the Red Dog Saloon. In these types of events, there was a limited delineation between performers and audience. The charlatans are believed to be the first band known to have performed a live concert in public while high on LSD, which had not yet been criminalized at the time they were doing it. Their shows at the Red Dog featured some of the earliest uses of psychedelic light show effects that the San Francisco clubs would later become known for. The band dressed in a mix of Victorian-style clothing and Wild West gear. This fashion sense would become influential in the youth and band fashions that were involved in the larger hippie culture to come. For a run of the band's shows in June of 1964, the charlatans produce posters to promote the shows, which are believed to be the first psychedelic concert posters. Despite this band's importance in the early stages of the San Francisco music scene, the band had been ill-fated when it came to recording contracts, as they had been unable to find a label that did not try to interfere with their musical vision, which led to singles and an early studio album that all went unreleased. By the time the band finally released this album in 1969, they had lost their momentum. The band's sound was linked to the jug band style of folk music that had been popular with young musicians before Bob Dylan went electric. And as the newer emerging San Francisco bands evolved in improvisational acid rock style, the sound of the charlatans became a bit behind the times by the time this debut album finally hit the market. Another associated album from 1969 came out from Dan Hicks and his Hot Licks. While Dan Hicks had not been a founding member of the Charlatans, he had joined the band very soon after their founding. Replacing their original drummer, Dan Hicks wrote and sang for the Charlatans, and he would move to rhythm guitar in 1967 to better position himself as the singer for the band. Hicks wound up leaving the Charlatans in 1968 before their debut album came out, and he wound up founding his Hot Licks group. His album, Original Recordings, came out in 1969. 
And while it wasn't exactly a blockbuster, Dan Hicks did maintain a reasonable career as a recording and touring musician throughout his lifetime, including many reoccurring appearances in concert in Virginia City. Hicks died of cancer several years ago. The Charlatans album is enjoyable, but not particularly remarkable. The Hicks album is superior due to the quality of Hicks's songwriting, including perhaps his most famous song, I Scare Myself, which I'm going to play now for you. Enjoy. While San Francisco was getting the majority of the attention during the late 1960s, Southern California was also producing a diverse set of bands of its own. 1969 resulted in a lot of blues rock albums, and in Los Angeles, one of these blues rock albums came from a new album from Canned Heat, that album being Hallelujah, their fourth album. And also out of Los Angeles was Pacific Gas and Electric, who released their self-titled second album and the first album by the band to come out on a major label. Both of these albums are enjoyable, but a bit predictable and generic sounding for the 1960s blues rock era. The peak period for the critically acclaimed band Love was over by 1969, but the band's leader, Arthur Lee, who was the only remaining original member of the group, churned out a large amount of new music. In order to clear the contract requirements for the band, so that he could freely move on to other projects. Lee recorded three albums worth of material at this time, and he gave Elektra Records their choice of the songs to fill out what would become the fourth album under the Love label in order to complete the contract of the band for them. This fourth album was called For Sale, that being a numeric for, and sale being as in on the ocean, not a monetary transaction. The remaining tracks from those marathon recording sessions that were not selected for for sale were gathered together to make a double album, which was called Out Here. This album was released a few months later on by a new label 
that was independent at the time, called Blue Thumb Records. Neither Out Here or For Sale were very well-focused albums, but both of them have some interesting tracks on them. The most famous Los Angeles band of this era was The Doors, and The Doors released what I feel was their weakest studio album during Jim Morrison's life. This was The Doors' fourth album, and on this album, the producer and Robbie Krieger brought in horns and string arrangements in an effort to emulate the commercially popular style of the new jazz rock bands such as Blood, Sweat, and Tears in Chicago. Jim Morrison himself had grown disillusioned with his role as a rock star, and he was considering quitting the band, and Morrison had begun his descent into depression and alcoholism. So Morrison's songwriting contributions were much less on this album than they had been for prior albums from The Doors. The more commercial focus of this album paid off for the band with a number three Billboard hit with the song Touch Me, and the album wound up selling well. But this new direction did cause friction with the band's underground fan base, and this album has certainly not aged well in comparison with the band's earlier albums and a couple of their later ones. Why won't you tell me what she said? What was that promise that you made? Now I'm gonna love you Till the heavens stop the rain I'm gonna love you Till the stars fall from the sky For you and I One of the landmark music events of the late 1960s was, of course, the Woodstock Music Festival, which occurred in 1969. The Woodstock Festival featured a lot of the major bands of the era, and among those bands that appeared on Woodstock, there were quite a few of them that had new material out in 1969 that I listened to as part of this 1969 listening project, but that are bands that are not really going to compete for my top 20 list, despite the albums being fairly enjoyable overall. Those included Canned Heat, who I already mentioned previously in regards to blues rock bands out of Los Angeles. And another famous participant at Woodstock was Country Joe and the Fish. Country Joe and the Fish released their fourth studio album, while Country Joe himself also released the first two solo albums of his career. Beyond my way, yes. Also at Woodstock was Ten Years After, 
who released their second and third albums of their career. I woke up this morning One of the breakout stars of Woodstock was Joe Cocker. Joe Cocker wowed audiences with the creativity of his original arrangements of well-known pop songs and with the energy and oddity of his performance style. Joe Cocker would release his first two albums of his career in 1969. One of these several months before his breakout appearance at Woodstock and the other one coming out a few months following that performance. As with the other albums I've already mentioned in this segment, both of these Joe Cocker albums are enjoyable releases, but not spectacular enough to truly compete for my ultimate top 20 spots. Another band that made a famous appearance at Woodstock was The Who. The Who had released their famous rock opera album, Tommy, in 1969, and Woodstock was one of many concert appearances that the band did in support of that album. The Tommy rock opera may be historic for its ambition, and it was critically acclaimed at its release and continues to receive positive critical analysis since that time though perhaps these days with a bit more thorough perspective than the overly fawning praise that came out at the time of Tommy's release. But personally, I can't say that I'm all that big of a fan of this album. The song that concludes Tommy, We're Not Gonna Take It, is excellent, both musically and lyrically. We're not gonna take it, never did and never will. We're not gonna take it, gonna break it, gonna shake it, let's forget it better still. Now you can hear me, your ears are truly sealed. And the hit song Pinball Wizard remains a fun novelty song to this day, despite heavy overplay. But those two songs comprise only 9 minutes and 46 seconds of a double album that winds up clocking in at well over 75 minutes overall. And I find the rest of the album fairly tedious listening, 
and often mean-spirited lyrically. The Who ultimately would abandon an attempt to follow up Tommy with another huge multimedia opera that was to be called Lifehouse. Given its place in rock history, I had to make note of Tommy in 1969, of course, but truly, I myself would be perfectly happy if this listening project was the last time that I ever had to sit through Tommy end to end. So perhaps, given that negative impression from me of the Tommy rock opera, it's rather appropriate that my favorite song from that opera is actually that concluding one, in which the character of Tommy is summarily rejected by his followers as an overrated fraud. Johnny Winter was among the new artists that perform at Woodstock that did not receive a direct career boost from his performance there. This was most likely due to the fact that Johnny Winter was not featured in the documentary film, and his performance at the festival was not officially released to the public until 2009. This is too bad, because that late-arriving live release shows that Johnny Winter was one of the highlight sets of that festival. Johnny Winter was absolutely on fire in 1969, and he released two outstanding blues rock albums that featured his blistering hot guitar work. I gave very strong consideration to including one of Johnny Winter's albums in my top 20 list, but ultimately, while I find Johnny Winter's guitar work to be absolutely masterful, I've never particularly enjoyed his slightly odd and almost cartoonish vocal style. And that discomfort with Johnny Winter's singing was enough to wind up cutting him in a year with way too many hard choices to make. For me, Johnny Winter sounds almost like the Cookie Monster when he sings or something. One young artist of the time that was scheduled to play the Woodstock Festival, but withdrew due to scheduling concerns, was Joni Mitchell. Joni Mitchell's second album, Clouds, was out in 1969, and she was scheduled to make a TV appearance promoting this new release. Her record label was concerned, due to the weather forecast for Woodstock, that Joni would get stuck at the festival and miss her TV booking so they convinced her to cancel her appearance at Woodstock. Mitchell wound up watching the TV news coverage of the festival with great regret for having missed out on the opportunity to sing for such a huge crowd and for missing being part of such a major cultural moment. And, as it turned out, some other bands from the Woodstock Festival successfully managed to appear on that same TV program that she was booked to appear on. So her cancellation wound up being completely unnecessary. Mitchell did wind up composing the ultimate tribute to the event, though, with the release of her new song, Woodstock. That song does not appear on Joni's album of this year, Clouds, since the song was not completed until after the Clouds album had been released. Joni Mitchell's album, Clouds, to me, was a vast improvement on her debut album. 
as Joni's excellent songwriting was beginning to burst forth at this point, and the production quality on Clouds is much better than it had been for Joni Mitchell's first album. However, on Clouds, Joni Mitchell was not yet pursuing the more innovative musical arrangements that she would soon become known for. So, while Joni Mitchell's voice on this album is quite lovely, and there are some great songs on the album, musically to me, Clouds is a little bit bland, so I couldn't put it into my top 20. The album includes Joni Mitchell's version of her song, Both Sides Now, a song that Joni Mitchell was a songwriter for and had become a top 10 song for Judy Collins back in 1967. On this album, we get to hear Joni Mitchell's own interpretation of this song of hers. But clouds got in my way I've looked at clouds from both sides now Come up and down And still somehow it's cloud illusions I recall, I really don't know clouds Joni was part of a new wave of innovative and experimental new singer-songwriters that were proliferating around this time, many of whom also had interesting albums out in 1969, that, like Joni Mitchell's Clouds album, will also not be making an appearance in my final list of my top 20 favorites for the year. Among these additional innovative new singer-songwriters were Laura Nairo, Laura Nairo was a very successful pop songwriter of the era, but for her personal albums, Nairo pursued a very non-pop approach. Nairo's third, and probably her most critically acclaimed album, came out in 1969. That album was titled New York Tenderberry. Nairo's piano work is downright avant-garde, and her singing style is prone to a sort of wailing quality. I personally admire Laura Nairo's songwriting quite a bit, but I have never warmed up to her performance style, so none of her music was really ever a candidate for my top 20 list. Another new singer-songwriter of the era was Leonard Cohen, who released his second album in 1969, Songs from a Room. Leonard Cohen is always worth a listen, and Songs from a Room contains one of his most beloved songs, that song being Bird on a Wire. But overall, I find some of the production choices on Cohen's second album distracting. The album features fairly stark, but also oddly chosen instrumentation choices. And I personally don't think that the vocal performances are among Leonard Cohen's best work, and that being for a performer who was never particularly critically lauded for his singing voice, so much as he was for his poetic songwriting. Like a bird on 
on the wire Like a drunk in a midnight choir I have tried in my way to be free Another young singer at the time, Tim Buckley, released two very good albums in 1969, which were the third and fourth albums of his career. Both of these two albums had Tim Buckley exploring increased jazz influences in his music. And I like both of these albums, but neither of them were strong enough for me for me to place them in my top 20. I can't The Lottie Golden debut album from 1969, titled Motorcycle, seems to have turned into an obscurity in pop culture since that time. This is regretful, because Motorcycle is a very interesting piece of work that focuses on autobiographical tales of working-class New York life in the 1960s. Lottie Golden's style is very soulful and rocking on this album. Though the album did not ultimately make my top 20 list, I would recommend this album to anybody looking for unique, lost musical artifacts of this era. Perhaps strangest of all, and what I've already noted earlier in this podcast, I felt was already a very strange year. 1969 supplied the world with the return of Moondog. This was Moondog's first record release since 1957. Moondog's music is best described simply by saying, he is Moondog. It's a kind of blend of classical minimalism, freeform jazz, and weird experimentation. It's interesting stuff, but it is also largely the type of music that you gotta be in the mood for. The only one who knows this ounce of words is just a token, is he who has a ton to tell that must remain unspoken. The singer-songwriter Donovan was a few years ahead of the newer wave of singer-songwriters that I've been mentioning here in my podcast so far. Donovan started out as one of the original Next Dylans, as they were called, before becoming an early adopter of psychedelia and sitar music. 
1969 album was called Barabba Jackal, and he made the album with the Jeff Beck Group as his backing band. This album is an example of just how weird music from 1969 could get. The title track of Barabba Jackal is a delightfully infectious bit of nonsense. Liquid passing oil in the water. Love is hot. Truth is I love that song unconditionally, and there are some other good songs on this album as well, but not everything on this album is great. This album contains the song Atlantis, which is just the type of new age silliness that makes it way too easy these days to mock the hippie movement. And the other so-called gods of our legends, though gods they were, and as the elders of our time choose to remain blind, let us rejoice and let us sing and dance and ring in the new. Hail Atlantis! I sort of love that stuff anyway, given my upbringing. But songs such as Atlantis and poetry that is similar to it from that era are laughably pretentious even to my tastes. And beyond Atlantis, this album goes off the rails completely with the song I Love My Shirt, which is one of the silliest songs of all time if you ask me. I Love My Shirt is so bad that it almost rolls around into the camp classic type of category where it could potentially become so bad that it's good. Seriously, check this song out if you don't believe me. I'll play a clip of it here. How much damn LSD was Donovan on at this time when he wrote this crap? You'll have to ponder that question for yourself after listening to this song. I'd say enjoy, but Mostly, you're probably going to be going, what the hell is this? Do you have a shirt that you really love? One that you feel so groovy in? You don't even mind if it starts to fade. That only makes it nicer still. I love my shirt. I love my shirt. My shirt is so comfortably lovely. I love my shirt. A different sort of singer-songwriter was building a career at the time in England as David Bowie released his second album two years after failing to make an impact with his debut. In England, the second album would again be self-titled, like his first album had been as the album is an introduction to a completely reimagined musical style and image for Bowie, this becoming the first identity transformation for an artist who would make transformations into an ongoing hallmark of his long career. In America, Bowie's second album would initially be released under the title of Man of Words, Man of Music. 
Later, in 1972, after David Bowie had signed with RCA Records, RCA would re-release this second album from him and rename the album for its iconic opening hit song, Space Oddity. Bowie had debuted in 1967 with an album of music that was heavily influenced by the traditional English music hall style. With his manager trying to establish Bowie as a wide-ranging singing star, not bound to the rock and roll genre. With this second album, David Bowie is in more of a hippie-friendly type of folk rock mode, with some hints of prog rock in the mix as well. In the following years, David Bowie would begin to build his blockbuster glam rock persona. As it happens, a band that he would wind up writing a major glam rock hit for was releasing their own debut hard rock album during 1969, that band being Mott the Hoople. In 1969, at this point in their respective careers, I think Mott the Hoople put out the better 1969 album. On the David Bowie album, the song Space Oddity is of course simply amazing, as is the song Signet Committee, the end side A. But the rest of David Bowie's second album is still a hodgepodge of Bowie experimenting with various voices and various musical influences. So while David Bowie had the better songs, and Bowie was showing hints of the fantastic ambition that would soon help him to become one of the greatest artists of his generation. Nevertheless, it wound up being Mott the Hoople that were simply already comfortable with their image and direction at this time. And thus, it was Mott the Hoople that wound up making a more confident and enjoyable album for their debut album in 1969 than David Bowie's second album. And yet, despite that praise for Mott the Hoople, it must be noted also that only the song Rock and Roll Queen is particularly memorable from this debut album from the band. So as it turns out, neither the David Bowie album nor the Mott the Hoople album wound up being good enough to really compete for my top 20 spots. There were a couple of notable debuts in the more pop-oriented arena of music. Elton John's easily forgettable debut album, Empty Sky, appeared in 1969. Elton John was already working with Bernie Taupin as his lyricist by this time, but the partnership wouldn't really hit its commercial stride until Elton John's second album. All the world outside, thinking of the way 
Meanwhile, the Carpenters' first album also appeared. This debut album was initially titled Offering, and then the album was re-released and remarketed under a revised title of Ticket to Ride, based on the Carpenters' cover of the Beatles' song, because their cover of Ticket to Ride wound up getting a bit of airplay, although it did top out at only number 54 on the pop charts. He's got a ticket to ride He's got a ticket to ride He's got a ticket to ride And he don't care Don't know why he's riding so high This debut album had much of the musical hallmarks that the Carpenters would later become famous and popular for. Lush orchestration and Karen Carpenter's pristine, pretty vocal work. But aside from a couple of cover songs, the songwriting here was all done by Richard Carpenter and John Bettis, who was an old bandmate from a band that the Carpenter siblings had previously spent time in. After this album, the Carpenters would wind up reaching out to industry songwriting heavyweights like Burke Baccarat for their follow-up albums in order for the songs on their albums to match the potential of their vocal and instrumental arrangements to make the sort of huge, easy-listening hits that the band had in mind. More impactful in 1969 than either one of those two albums, on the pop and easy-listening side of the industry, but not a debut artist at the time, was Neil Diamond. Neil Diamond released two albums in 1969, these being the fourth and fifth studio albums of Neil Diamond's career. The first of these two albums released in 1969 was Brother Love's Traveling Salvation. This album was initially another sales disappointment for Neil Diamond, who had had decent success as a singles act, but had yet to have any major hit albums. At this point in his career, Neil Diamond had achieved seven top 40 hits, without any of those hits translating to impressive record sales. Later in 1969, the song Sweet Caroline would be released as a single, and that song would become Neil Diamond's highest charting single to that point when it hit number four on the pop charts so his label would re-release the Brother Loves album and add Sweet Caroline to the title of the album and add Sweet Caroline as a new final track on the album. These changes helped the re-release version of this album to jump into the top 100 on the Billboard charts, and the album would eventually become Neil Diamond's first album to achieve gold sales status. Touching hands, reaching out, touching me, touching you. 
Neil Diamond wound up following up that album with a second album in 1969, which was titled Touching You, Touching Me, despite the fact that this album title comes from the lyrics of Sweet Caroline. That song wasn't on the U.S. pressing of this album, although it was added to the U.K. version of this album, since the re-released version of the Brother Love album had not been distributed to the U.K. The big hit from Touching You, Touching Me wound up being the song Holly Holy. This song went to number six on the pop charts. The American public had obviously finally fully embraced Neil Diamond by this point, because Touching You, Touching Me wound up going to number 30 on the Billboard charts and wound up becoming Neil Diamond's second gold album. Every single album that Neil Diamond would release from this point forward through 2008 would go to at least gold sales status. He released a Christmas album in 2009 that finally broke that streak, missing gold status at that time. I'm personally not enough of a Neil Diamond fan for me to place any of his albums in my top 20 albums list. I do like occasional songs from Neil Diamond, so I'm perfectly happy to listen to a greatest hits collection from him, but he's never been an artist that I particularly gravitate towards. In the realm of traditional vocal pop, there had been few stars to match the career of Frank Sinatra, but Sinatra's star power was well diminished by 1969. Frank Sinatra had worked very hard to set up a career resurgence during the mid-1960s, but his chart impact quickly diminished again, and by 1969, Sinatra was tired of fighting for relevance. Due to his frustration with the music industry and the direction at the time of popular music, Sinatra told Paul Anka over dinner that he was thinking of quitting the music business. Paul Anka, as it turns out, had recently purchased the rights to a French pop song called, and I'll probably murder this because I'm not good at foreign languages, as I've mentioned in the past, but the French pop song was called something like Come de Habitude. Anka had bought the rights to the song because he liked the musical arrangements for it, but he didn't think much of the song lyrics itself. Anka used the musical arrangement for this song as a base for new lyrics that he wrote specifically for Frank Sinatra. Anka tried to capture some of Sinatra's personal swagger and to provide him with some sort of swan song statement so that if Frank Sinatra did indeed decide that his career in music was over, that he could leave the business with one last musical hurrah. So, Paul Anka wound up writing the song, My Way. As it turns out, Frank Sinatra did not quit the music business, but My Way still wound up becoming Sinatra's signature song for the remainder of career. In my opinion, it's a truly great song, and it was a great vocal performance from Sinatra. But in a mark of just how much 
the music industry was moving on from its love affair with Sinatra. My Way wound up topping out at only number 27 on the pop charts. And it didn't even go to number one on the easy listening charts, where it topped out at number two. At number 27, My Way still wound up becoming Sinatra's second to last top 40 pop hit. And it was the last one for over a decade. He wouldn't return to the pop charts for one last hurrah until 1980, when his version of Theme from New York, New York became a hit. Reportedly, though My Way became the signature song for the late career of Sinatra, Sinatra was never actually very fond of it. Sinatra's daughter has said that Frank felt that this song was too self-indulgent. The song My Way would provide the album track for one of two Sinatra albums that came out in 1969. The My Way album was filled out with Sinatra's cover of a bunch of contemporary pop songs of the day, an effort by his record company to drum up more sales, which did seem to work as the My Way album wound up going to gold-level sales status. To say the things he truly feels And not the words of one who kneels The record shows I took the blow Sinatra's other album for 1969 is A Man Alone, and this album was filled with songs written by poet Rod McEwen. The second album didn't produce any American hits, and it wasn't a sales blockbuster. But to me, that album sounds much more like the music Sinatra wanted to make than the contemporary pop album does. Still and all I'm happy reason is you see once in a while along the way love's been good to me there was a girl in portland before the winter chill we used to go a courting neither of these albums was a consideration for my top 20 but the song My Way would certainly find its way onto a list of my favorite songs of 1969. I've already mentioned a number of the emerging singer-songwriters of the during the earlier portion of this episode. The man who inspired so much of the experimentalism and sophistication of these new singer-songwriters wound up releasing his ninth studio album in 1969. The album Nashville Skyline had Bob Dylan delving deeper into a country music style. Nashville Skyline contained the smoothest vocal work of Dylan's career, with Dylan crooning in a precise tenor style. This change in Dylan's voice was partially due to his having quit cigarettes at the time, but it was also due to a deliberate attempt at capturing what Dylan felt was a more authentic Nashville country sound to his singing. Lay, lady, lay, lay across my big breast, baby. Whatever colors you have 
in your mind I show them to you And you see them shine Lay, lay, lay Play across my big breast, baby at the same time, the Nashville Skyline album pretty well abandoned the complex and nuanced poetic lyrical structures that Dylan had become acclaimed for. For this album, Dylan adopted more simple language and more straightforward song subjects. Nashville Skyline is certainly a good album, but it's not one that I ever tend to reach for when I want to listen to Bob Dylan. I like the song, Tonight I'll Be Staying Here With You, and I threw it all away quite a bit. I threw it all away Once I had mountains In the palm of my hand And rivers that ran through every day There must have been made I never knew what I had until I threw it all away. The deep cuts on the album are enjoyable, and the album also remakes Girl from the North Country from Dylan's second album into a new country duet that he does with Johnny Cash. That remake is very nicely done, although I still tend to prefer the original version. I'm not particularly fond of his big hit song, Lay Lady Lay, which is probably the most well-known song from this album. Anyway, Bob Dylan won't be making an appearance in my top 20 list for 1969. So I just mentioned Bob Dylan's turn towards country style music. This was a direction that Dylan had started when he used Nashville musicians for his 1967 album, John Wesley Harding. In general, country rock had been an active undercurrent that a number of rock and folk groups had been playing with, but Bob Dylan's influence helped to make this style into a major trend. Graham Parsons was a leading light of this country rock movement. He was dedicated to the production of what he called Cosmic American Music. Parsons had made such music with the International Submarine Band before he was hired by the Birds and quickly became the creative muse for that band's own turn towards country rock music, which appeared with the album Sweetheart of the Rodeo. In 1969, Parsons had left the Birds, and he took Chris Hillman with him, and the two created a new group, along with bass player Chris Etheridge, who had been a member of the International Submarine Band with Parsons. And they also added a pedal steel player, Sneaky Pete Kleinow, the new group was called the Flying Burrito Brothers, and they released their debut album in 1969, The Gilded Path of Sin. This album broke down walls between honky-tonk country music, psychedelia, and soul music. One of the highlight tracks on this album is the band's cover of James Carr's classic soul song, Dark End of the Street. We'll have to pay. Dark end of the street 
and it also includes a cover of an Aretha Franklin song, redone as country soul music. The Flying Burrito Brothers were not particularly financially successful. The Gilded Path of Sin didn't really sell well, and the touring by the group wound up playing to increasingly smaller audiences as they went on, although this was likely as much due to Parsons' drug-induced unreliability as it was due to the weirdness of the band's musical direction. But despite this lack of commercial success, the musical inspiration supplied by the Flying Burrito Brothers to other groups wound up being enormous. And The Gilded Path of Sin is indeed a very fun album, and I wound up giving it strong consideration for a spot in my top 20 list, although it wound up not quite making it on there. It likely would have made it into a top 25 list if I'd extended the list that far. To me, it's certainly the best album in the newly emerging country rock style in While Parsons had left the birds, the group still did continue with a more countryfied version of their own sound, and the band released two new studio albums in 1969. There's some good songs on both of these two albums, but the group turnover in the birds and the pace of recording to fulfill contractual requirements definitely took a toll on the overall quality of these albums. The river flows. It flows to the sea Wherever that river goes That's where I want to be Flow, river flow Let your waters wash down Take me from this road To some other town Another country rock band that debuted in 1969 was Poco. Poco was a seven-piece band out of Southern California that was formed by two former members of Buffalo Springfield, and the band also included Randy Meisner, who would later go on to join the Eagles. I myself have never been a fan of Poco, and re-listening to this debut album did not make any dents in that resistance. I really didn't enjoy this album at all. We're bringing you back down home where the folks are happy Sitting, picking out a grin Casually, you and me We'll pick up the pieces ah, Somebody yelled out at me Country music and company A bit more obscure, but still influential, was Steve Young. Steve Young released his second country rock album in 1969, and this album included the song Seven Bridges Road, which would later wind up becoming a cover song for the Eagles in concert, and the band would eventually score a hit with it 
with a live version that was released as a single in 1980. While country rock was indeed a hot trend at the time, the signs of what you might call country pop was also bubbling up. John Denver, who would enjoy major crossover appeal on country pop and easy listening radio in the 1970s, released his first commercial solo album in 1969. The album was Rhymes and Reasons. This album was a fairly generic sounding folk rock album for the period. It didn't contain much to hint at being the work of an emerging superstar, except perhaps the sing-along catchiness of the song Leaving on a Jet Plane. This John Denver written song is included on this album and was a number one hit song for Peter, Paul, and Mary, the only number one pop hit that Peter, Paul, and Mary ever actually obtained. So kiss me and smile for me Tell me that you wait for me Hold me like you never let me go Cause I'm leaving on a jet plane Don't know when I'll be back again Oh babe, I hate to go Meanwhile, Kenny Rogers moved explicitly to the frontman role in the group The First Edition at this time. First Edition released two albums in 1969. The first of these was under the group name only, and the second one being the first album by the group to be credited as Kenny Rogers and the First Edition. The First Edition's music in 1969 hopped onto the country rock bandwagon and Kenny Rogers would later eventually go solo in the 1970s and become a huge superstar that, like John Denver, was successful in charting hits on country, pop, and easy listening radio formats. The song, Ruby Don't Take Your Love to Town, would be Kenny Rogers' first song of this style to become a crossover hit. This song wound up going to number six on the pop charts, number six on the easy listening charts, and number 39 on the country charts. We'll listen to a clip of Ruby Don't Take Your Love to Town to end this episode. Thanks for listening, and please return next episode when I will continue with my review of the albums and musical trends of 1969. As always, if you want to get a hold of me, you can send email to tony at roadtojamnation.com. You can join my Facebook group, also called Road to Jam Nation, on which you are free to post any comments, criticisms, or questions. Or you can contact me on what was formerly known as Twitter and is now called simply X. On that platform, I'm under my own name, Tony Kirillic. Thanks for listening. Now here's Kenny Rogers in the first edition. Ruby, don't take your love to town. Enjoy! Ruby, are you contemplating going out somewhere? 
The shadow on the wall tells me the sun is going down Oh, blue 